I'm an old school general surgeon that does trauma, thoracic, vascular oncology, and other tumors and stuff, but, and they're not trained like that anymore. So, but I just didn't want to ever be caught in a situation where I could not save someone's life. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Seek Go Create. Tim Winders here, your host. I'm an executive coach and just a guy who lives in an RV. This is the place where we challenge conventional definitions of success, explore stories of transformation in leadership, business, and ministry. We'll definitely be doing that in our interview today. We have the privilege of interviewing Craig Thayer. He has a nickname called Tank. We'll ask him about that. He's a renowned surgeon, number one best-selling author. I'm a portion of the way through his book, I think 66%. So great book. He's a radio show co-host and motivational speaker. We're going to dive into his journey. He's got a lot of things in his background. We're going to ask about, talk about success and finding strength, hope, inspiration in the face of adversity. Just a lot of cool things here. Craig, welcome to Seek Go Create. It's an honor, Tim. It's an honor. Thank you. Yeah, and you're coming from my old home state up in Georgia there, and I'm out here in the Black Hills. So good to always good to talk to people that are in Georgia. Hey, Craig, first question. Let's get started. You and I just bumped into each other, and we really did just meet just a few minutes ago. And I ask you what you do. When someone asks you that question, what do you tell them? Uh, it depends on the environment. I grew up in California, and talking about God is somewhat risky in there. I have two slides if I'm presenting. One's like my credentials, which is I'm a trauma surgeon. I've been trauma medical director for 20 years, chief of staff, surgical review chair, husband to my wife, father to my kids, assistant scoutmaster to both my youngest sons who became Eagles, water polo player, got back in playing masters in 2001 and got to be invited to Fino Worlds to play against a bunch of other countries. Yeah, but I think the other side of that is I'm, I'm a son of God, and like I said, husband and my wife, father to my kids, and a servant here to serve and not be served. Mm, yeah, that, I agree with you. It depends on the setting. Like sometimes I'll say, if you're on an airplane and someone just says, hey, what do you do? And, but that's interesting that you said when you're in California, you have a different, that's yeah, kind of so sad, isn't it? It is. But, Coming to Georgia two years ago, you notice a lot of things. One is the people are incredibly nice. It's like California was in the 70s. The billboards talk about Jesus. You will never see that in California. The people talk about, I and mean, they'll ask, you ask them, how are they? They say, blessed. So there's not, and there's, I don't see any racial tension in this state at all. So maybe in the bigger cities. But even then, I've visited, I had some friends that were going to conferences in Atlanta, and we went to breakfast somewhere, and it's multi-generational and multi-ethnic. It's a great place to be. The, the interesting thing about Georgia is I grew up in a small town just outside of Atlanta, my wife did also, that then got swallowed up by Atlanta. And so it, it's interesting. There's the big cities, Atlanta, Charlotte, and maybe Nashville and all, but then there's, you get outside, you're a little outside of Atlanta and that's just kind of small town, South, yeah. smaller town. And it really is a good spot where I'm coming right now I'm in rapid city, South Dakota. And it's the same way. 
it's 80,000 people or something like that. And we've just found that it nourishes our soul. We enjoy those smaller areas. And I think that's the, I think that's the dividing point. And if we want to look at our country now is like urban and rural, not really by right. states and all that. It's kind of like that. So now let's talk first about, I think the, the lead in your bio is that trauma surgeon role. And I think many times when we look at identity and who we are, it's often attached to some kind of profession. I picked this up in the book. We'll talk more about the book in just a little while, but I picked this up in the book. You feel as if you were called to go into that role before birth. Did I read that right? Or, yeah, or, absolutely. Or it, the book's about the miracles in my life. And if I were to give a testimony on a medical mission trip that I've done every year for the last, we skipped COVID, but 12 years. I would have started, I was adopted. I was an orphan for nine months and I was mandatorily brought up Catholic. That was the requirement. But the reality is it began before that. So my natural mother, who was in Michigan, began to show, was engaged. He wasn't going through catechism fast enough. So she, when she started to show back in the sixties, would have been shunned in her church. So out of wedlock pregnancy. So she ran to California to a friend in Monterey, had me for 10 days, baptized me, tried to look up what my baptismal name was, but they didn't have the records or they just never answered me back. Uh, so really it began in the womb. God knitted me in the womb before or knew me and knows my purpose. And then, but the definitive, I think moments were, I knew I liked to help people because I was tutoring two blind students in geometry. You have to think outside the box because they can't see a circle, they can't feel as they feel it, like a sphere would be a tennis ball. And, and then I took an anatomy physiology class and that was it. The human body was incredible. One of the interesting things about that was, is I got 110% on the paper I wrote, which was on the eye, which as a scientist, Darwin, when he wrote his book on evolution had, it was very apologetic. It took him 20 years to write. And he has three things that he can't explain. One of those is the eye. Is that a coincidence? I also grew up in Providence Court. So, you know, God was providing for me long and far ago. But you really, it's, it's fascinating to me because one of the things we really address here is just this word success and how in many times our modern day culture, that word's kind of been messed up because so many people look to other people to measure their success or you know it's financial or something, which all of that, there's nothing wrong with it, but I don't think it's the pureness of what we're right. designed right. and called right. to do. Yeah. I think and, you said this on one of your recent podcasts, it's leading teamwork. And if you do it as a team, then when someone fails or makes an error, let's say it's football, they've dropped the ball, they come back to the huddle and they apologize because they, they have skin in the game. They want to perform for the team. And so on the radio show, we interviewed a rear admiral of the US Reagan who gave the flag to Mrs. Reagan when Ronald Reagan died and he leads as a team. He cruises around the boat in an aircraft carrier and he knows people and he inspires them as a team member, right? And my viewpoint is to be humble. It was also mentioned when you prior guests, because the reality is, is if I'm the quarterback, I can get blindsided if someone like Tarkenton breaks his leg and a whole bunch of blindsides that don't end well. If my receivers can't catch the ball or my running backs can't carry it, I'm useless. So that, that's my position in life and my position in surgery. 
Yeah. The, the fascinating thing about it though, this is where I was wanting to go is that that that's a difficult profession to get trained for and things like that. It's not as if you just graduate from high school and say, I'm going to become a trauma surgeon or something like that. And so it, it fascinates me too, because you didn't really, it didn't sound as if you came from a medical family. None. And I know, and I know one thing that most people do, and we've had a lot of conversations on the show and other things, most people, it's a journey that they go through of identifying things that they don't want to do. And maybe then they find things that they want to do. But I'm really fascinated with this whole concept that you really felt believed it was in your core from what I've read in the book, you really had a strong urging and almost burned the ships, didn't have other alternatives. One like, you know what, I'm going to be a painter. If this surgeon thing doesn't work out, I'm going to do something else. You were on, on task with that. Oh, so yeah. tell me a little bit more about that feeling that you had growing up as a five-year-old, 10-year-old. 18 year old, the times when you were in college, when we know that you're going through challenging things, we may discuss that in a little while. So yeah. I'd like to know more about it because that's fascinating to me. I just, I think what I was lucky to do was kind of know my gifts before I knew that there were gifts, healing, empathy, serving, teaching. And that became when I realized surgery, because I work with my hands, became a passion. And once that passion is there, Inspiration and motivation to last seven days or so, but a passion to last for a lifetime. So I knew that I wanted to do that so much that like my senior year, my mom had sponsored two a brother and sister to come over from England. One lived in our trailer out front and the other one were distributed throughout our house. Kevin was in my room, cousin. And I played water polo that year, but I didn't swim because I got a job for the family. And my first W-2 job was working at McDonald's. And then I had scholarships to schools, Stanford for water polo, other ones. And then I didn't want to go to a school that I felt like I had to be obligated to play and not have time to study. So UC Davis was perfect. It's, it was the only D1 sport for that school was water polo. And so I saw how I did freshman year and I did fine. Then I could play and just, you look through the adversity I went through in college, I guess it's probably the stubbornness in me, but I would never give up, never give yeah. up. Yeah. And, and obviously you went through the adversity and we, and I think it might be a good time to address some of that because the college experience for most people is that this experience where they go, but you obviously had a focus, you had to get undergraduate and then you had to go through the medical school and then you had to go through residency. There's a long process there. And most people would struggle with just the grades, the academic portions of it. But let's hit a few of the things that came at you during that time, because that to me, it would have been a good opportunity to say, you know what, maybe I need to rethink some things. Right. But yet you didn't. So hit a few of those. I read about them in your book and yeah. people so, can get more details there. But yeah. Freshman year, third quarter. So UC Davis is horror system. It's 10 weeks. Very quick. You're taking a midterm a week and a half to two weeks into the quarter. And then a midterm about three weeks after that. And then a cumulative final of the whole year. You get behind very quickly if you don't stay up with things. It's one night, dark room, phone rings and my roommate. There's a two-room dorm, all-male floor. 
answers the phone. I could tell something was up, one word answers, and then it was your, it's your dad. And so my dad on the phone is just, I don't know how to tell you this. I don't know how to tell you this. I don't know how to tell you this, but your mom's passed away. And so I immediately said, I'll be right there. My grandparents lived in Sacramento. So they got me to the airport. I got picked up at the airport by my uncle. And then I was on an all-male floor and the guys said, he'll never come back. He won't finish. He's, he's lost more than a week or about a week. And then, but I did, then I finished. And if you get off series, like there's A, Kim 1B and Kim 1C. If you get off series, so the first quarter is now 1A instead of 1A is now the second quarter, you won't finish in four years. Not the track I was on, it was a biochemistry. And then sophomore year, I'm coming back from a bacteriology class on my bicycle, come around the corner, wrong side of the road. Uh, it's not dusk, but it's early evening. Girl pulls out in front of me. I jackknife my wheel so I won't hit her. I go to the ground, got up, made sure she was fine. She never got hit. She stopped. And the next thing I remember, I'm sitting there in front of an ambulance. <laughs> I got blood coming from my laceration of my ear. They take me to the health center. They stitch up my ear. I go home back to the dorm. Sophomore is an off-campus dorm. And I can't hear out of that ear. And there's fluid coming out of it. I'm like, so I call the health center in the evening and some grad student answers. And I'm like, is this serious? He goes, I don't know. Is it, do you think it's serious? <laughs> like, I don't know. So we made an appointment after my midterm for bacteriology in the afternoon. The next day I get there an x-ray later, I've got a basal skull fracture. So I've got air in my head and the risk for meningitis. So they admit me. I'm there for almost two weeks. Um, and I've got organic chem, physics, biochemical lab, bacteriology lab. I think stats, there was 18 units. I think I dropped two and finished the quarter again. All my friends were saying, he'll never finish. He'll be off series. And then my junior year, my dad calls me from an ER and says, there's a bunch of fluid around my lung. They just drained it. And it looks like it's stage four lung cancer. And I got to, I offered to come home and he's, no, I know you have a bigger purpose and I know what it is because it wasn't a secret to anybody. And then my dad died in between my junior and senior year. And it was, I was doing, I actually became a certified nursing assistant working in a skilled nursing facility. And, and once that, once my dad passed away, I stopped and just took care of the estate. But, and then the miracle in that year though, was when my dad was sick, I was in a five person dorm off campus and there was a phone jack. Old school, I don't know how many people know about long distance phone calls, but now with the cell phones, we don't have those. But yeah, I, there was never a bill to our suite and there was never a bill to the whole dorm system. So it was a free line for the whole year. I could talk to my dad for an hour or two every night. And then my dad passes away and I get through my senior year and just getting into medical school was another miracle. I think I applied to 20 schools and I had 18 thin letters, which means it's as you've been rejected or not accepted. And then I get one from UC Davis, which is thin. I'm like, oh no. And it says, congratulations, you've not been accepted. And I'm like, what? But you're on a wait list. And then the funny story about that was, it was during the summer, I'm just waiting to be called. And I was waiting for my roommate to call me to go pick him up. So I answer the phone, Craig's taxi service. And this lady says, oh, this is the UC Davis Medical School calling for Craig Thayer. Is he there? And I'm like, oh, just a second. I literally cover the phone. I don't change my voice. I give it five seconds and answer it. And She's like, yeah, you're in, but yeah. And there's, like you said, interesting, you said that I just knew that course, but not completely planned out of my head. 
because when it came to, to med school, I, when I interviewed for Georgetown, there's, this is in the book too, it's the most expensive school. And they gave me the interview and I was asked in the financial aid office, how do you plan for this? And I never even thought about that. And the guy in front of me was this rich kid that leaned forward in his chair and just said, cash, cold, hard cash. And I'm like, I just figured I'm going to get there. So I think I said, maybe the military or get loans. And uh, yeah, so it's so, just amazing so what I got through. It is. Yeah, there's no doubt there are miracles there. And one of the miracles to me was that you maintained that focus on the end goal. Because like I said, I could see how someone could easily along that way say, you know what, I'm going to take a quarter semester off and I'll catch back up, take care of family. You lose both parents, you have the injury. And in the book, I'll let people check this out. I have a background in real estate. I love the stories of you as a young person trying to take care of a house and that's in the family. And so all of those things, I think you had plenty of opportunity to go down another path, but either, either you just were so focused, God's hand was there, you were stubborn, all three, I, I don't know, it could have been all of those co combination. Right. But one thing I do want to ask is that I read somewhere that you had a reading disorder. You didn't discover that till you were 55 years old. And I was going to ask, how would you say you were as far as academics? Because going through all of the things for undergrad and then med school, the just the academic portion of what you did is not easy for most people. Are you strong in academics? Are you just a great studier? Did you, you have to be anxiety and I can see why giving students extra time on an exam, if they have, if they have dyslexia, I just grew up first, second grade teachers, he's a slow reader. He needs to read more in third grade. They actually tested your words per minute and I skipped around. I jumped roll lines. I sweat when Star Wars comes on and there's that hole and I land far away a long time ago. I'm like, oh, I can't keep up or I can't stand watching titled, subtitled movies. I miss them where I got to pause them and read it. And then, so I just knew that, but I never really thought that it was a disability or a problem. And I've taken a million tests. MCATs are eight hours long. Your boards are eight hours long. You're, I just, I have angst about those exams because I look at the time and the number of questions and make sure I stay on pace. And then I worry more about staying up, which is completely distracting, but I do okay. And then the dyslexia for processing speed, because when you read, you use your cortex normally, but dyslexics use deeper gray matter. So we have a higher speed to do that. It's just not as organized. So reading's hard. But when it comes to algorithms or like in trauma, we have a whole course called Advanced Trauma Life Support. And they teach you A, B, C, D, E, which is airway, breathing, circulation, defects, and environments. You go through those in your head. So the first, if you don't have an air, airway, you, then you got six minutes or you're brain dead. And then you got to make sure once you have the airway that they're breathing. So you can process algorithms more quickly and get things more quickly done. Mm. So second thing related to that time of your life, you'd mentioned a bit of a Catholic upbringing and throughout the book, the title of the book is saved, which I think has some multiple meanings from what I read. I mean, any, any, anybody in the Christian circles, when someone says saved, they attach it to something. But I think 
when someone's a trauma surgeon and other things like that, it has multiple right. meanings. But yeah, yeah. Tell me about where you were, where your faith was. I believe you always had this belief in higher power and things like that. Would you say you had strong faith when you were going through that season? Did it strengthen? Did it weaken? Did it change? Were you aware of it? What? Where was your faith? Just talk a little bit about that during that season yeah. of your life. Catholicism, probably to 90% of the kids is force fed, right? So you go to Sunday school. I think our eighth or seventh grade class gave our teacher a nervous breakdown and the guys were proud of that. And then Sol, the assistant, took over. And I'm ultimate scholar is the ultimate skeptic, right? So I'm like C.S. Lewis or the other newspaper or writer that would, I want to disprove this. And if I can, then whatever. And so I was, I would call, I would say I was a believer strongly in Jesus, God, and the Holy Spirit, but not a follower. I wasn't going to church. I was going to church with my family, but on and off. I competitively swam. So we were at almost every junior college and college on the weekends of the whole year. So keeping up with catechism was tough. And it, to be honest, I would jokingly say with my first wife, who I had my first three kids with, and two with now my second wife, Stephanie, and that I would drop them off at church and I go, I'm going to my church, which is the hospital, right? I had a great follower. I'm serving, but I'm not really serving. You know, not, I'm not studying the word. I'm not learning the truth. I'm not a teacher of the word by any means, definitely not by example. But then when my oldest daughter who played volleyball was on a club team and the club team would meet several different high schools for a Bible study, they would go, went to Rolling Hills Church and Chelsea goes, you guys need to come see this. It was a guy who was a professor out of Santa Clara who just was all about the context of the Bible. And I love that because it gives more meaning. And we fell in love with that. And that's where we started going on medical mission trips. And so that was probably, you know, it'd be more than 15, probably like almost 20 years ago. So, yeah. So later in my life, really, that I really became a follower and was it there. Yeah. And you obviously acknowledge the miracles and all that occurred along the way. There, there's another thing, and this question just popped in my head, so I'll just kind of ask you, we're in, a, we're in a world today, you brought up Darwin earlier, and you were heavy immersed in what I guess we would call the sciences. And we're in a world today where a lot of people see conflict between those, and, and there's conflict that's built in between believing in a higher power, believing in, in God, being a follower of Christ, and studying biology and medical and all it what's your when i bring that up now obviously you may not have been thinking as much then but do you see conflict do you see do you see the meshing together how do you tie in science and faith at this stage of your life so it's an interesting question because I, one of the first books i started writing was disproving science because it You're takes more faith. It, and I wanted to publish it in Nature, which is like the leading journal of science. And, and I just started with, what's science? What is science? Science is the observation of nature, which is really God's creation, right? So, because it's it's funny, because a recovery room nurse asked me that, how as a doctor can you be of faith? And I'm like, hey, 99.99% of astrophysicists and cos cosmologists believe in the Big Bang Theory, which is Genesis, light from darkness the explosion, blah, blah, blah. And even Hawking in his two books, Brief History and Briefer History, 
when he gets to that play, okay, so there's a time zero, which means there was a time before. And his comment on that was, that's a philosophical question. We won't go there. So that's Hawking, but he's absolute science. And Einstein was a deist. He felt like he could mathematically explain the universe, but he couldn't because of two people. Heisenberg, who was an uncertainty guy, you can't figure out where a subatomic particle is in location without losing its speed. And that just freaked him out. But and then there, I think there's a bunch of debates that he had with the Max Bohr, one of the quantum mechanics guys. But yeah, so it's just the, we, that's what we do. And look at x-ray. We just find something different that we can characterize what nature is. Or we take a protein molecule and we put it in a gel and we see how fast it sediments. So it determines what its size is by some sediment rate. It, it all fits. And I'm currently reading this book called Switched on Your Brain, which is about epigenetics where we can think positively and change the, our DNA transcription, producing different chemicals that create a different mindset. It's an interesting book. A lot of science, but I'm, I love that stuff. Yeah. So I think and it's just so obvious that there's too many chicken and eggs for us to have evolved. Let's just take DNA. We had one experiment long and far ago where they tried to create the Earth's environment and all they got were amino acids. And they said, maybe the amino acids could act like a protein and then create an RNA. And then the next experiment, all it did was produce RNA, no DNA. And this is just a molecule. So not the double strand, that that double strand unwinds and then prints and it prints itself. Which came first, the strands, which is, or the printer to print the strands. Yeah, it's fascinating to me because to me, I'm an engineer by training. I went to Georgia Tech just down the road from where you are there. Oh. And it's interesting. I remember when I was in school in the early to mid eighties and I kept trying to veer away from this bigger explanation of what goes on and come to define things. And the more you try to do that, I think the more it's a challenge. I want to hold that thought for just a second because I want to veer in a direction and then we may come back to this bigger picture discussion. People that go through medical training, there's a lot of different directions they can go. And we don't have to get into all of that here, but obviously there's specialties in medicine. There's to me, I've always thought it was a special kind of somebody that was wired to go into trauma, trauma surgery, surgery, emergency room, life or death. It's it, to me, it seems like an adrenal overload almost all the time. When do you rest? And then all of a sudden the lights start flashing and you're on. Talk about how you progressed into being a trauma surgeon as opposed to just family doctor or whatever. I know that's, there's a lot to that, but just because this is actually going to lead to, I want to have a conversation about life and death. And I think this is, you've got an interesting perspective on this. So how did you get into trauma surgery? When I was in high school, I thought I wanted to be a cardiothoracic or a neurosurgeon. And then immediately ruled out neurosurgery when I saw it in medical school. And then cardiothoracic, I did my own internship with the Sutter guys. So I set it up and designed it all myself to experience it. And I realized the work ethic and the commitment is huge. 
but te- and they're great technicians, but there's not a lot of mental challenge to stuff. They do valves and bypasses, and unless you go into peds where you have a whole bunch of malformations, then it's more interesting. But so then the other experience was this patient at the VA hospital who had lung cancer started to bleed into his trachea, and the medicine team didn't know how to put a tube into his trachea or do a tracheostomy, and the surgical resident was in the OR. So I was on the, it was my 12 weeks in the medicine service in med school. You do 12 weeks of medicine, surgery, 12 weeks of surgery, eight weeks of OBE, just different rotations. And I go, I don't want to ever get caught in this position. So technically, because now there's fellowships that make you trauma. I was, I'm an old school general surgeon that does trauma, thoracic, vascular oncology, and other tumors and stuff. But and they're not trained like that anymore. So, but I just didn't want to ever be caught in a situation where I could not save someone's life. And that was general surgery. So someone has a head bonk and they've got a hematoma, I can drain that. If you've been shot in the chest, and there's a hole in your heart, I can get to it, put my finger in it and get you the operator and we get it close. If you've got a ruptured aortic aneurysm and you're bleeding to death, I can clamp that off, put someone a graft and yeah. And as far as the anxiety, you have to learn to control your heart rate because if you go about above about 180 or so, you get a tremor and that's not going to work really well in the operating room. Yeah. And like I said, I think the you compartmentalize because I can remember a case with a six-year-old boy and it's in the book. Parents are going to like say Pway or somewhere for getting some food, rainy day, two kids are in the back. The, they lose traction and the car drifts to the, across the center line and a big truck hits them that end of the rear end of the car that slams the car around into a tree. So both rear ends on each side are just smashed. The girl's dead at the scene. The six-year-old still has some signs of life, heartbeat. So they get rushed to us, open his chest, do open heart massage. There's no injury in his chest to account for his lack of blood pressure run him to the operating room, open his belly, and there's nothing in there. And so you just go through this. But when you pull that drape off, and it's no longer just a strip of skin, you crumble. It always, these big ones take a piece of you and memorialize them. So when you compartmentalize them, bring them out every once in a while and honor them. Know that it's there. Don't let it live in your psyche so it's a problem. But yeah, but you... Enclosure. I mean, that was one of the cases where I went back to the paramedics and the police and had a big chaplain was there just to let them know what happened because they don't know. They drop them off and they go back to their firehouse and, but it gave them closure. So one thing you brought up, you used a word earlier when you were describing the position you're in that you want to be in a position to save someone's life. Fascinating. The name of the book is saved. And the word savior popped in my mind. And I do believe that a lot of people go in medicine and they want to help people be healthy and all that, but I'm not sure it's as laser focused as you said that you want to save the life at the point of emergency, something's going on and it's a very high, possibly high pressure situation, where did that come from? Where did that savior, I don't want to kind of, I don't want to call it a savior complex, but that desire, that craving to be at 
the front line. By the way, we won't get into it here, but I love your, I love the chapter where you and your son travel the route of the, uh, the, the band, band of brothers. brothers. Yeah. yeah, D-Day. That's Normandy is one of the places that I've always wanted to visit. I've been to Europe and haven't done that. But you, you want to be on the front lines. It's like you seem to live for being right there at that point. What's up with that? I just knew and have to be the general surgery that I mean, that's the reason why I chose general surgery. A lot of everybody going to med school does that for 12 weeks. They all say, this is the most impactful medicine that you can do because it's seconds to the golden hour for trauma that you got to do something. Right. And I remember the, I'd gotten off the 12 weeks of medicine and I'm on surgical rotation. And I present this big, long list of a differential diagnosis of 12 things, because that's what medicine is like. And Dr. Fry, the surgeon professor, stops me and says, now, Craig, if you want to think like a surgeon, you need to list the most life-threatening things first, and then describe how you've rolled that out. So I, I think it's just a desire to just be there at all costs and serve, service above self. Just a calling. It's just me. I'm not sure how. Probably part of that was just being raised an empath. My mom was an alcoholic. I learned that when I was 11. When we got home, and my dad opened the door, and she was laying there naked with her back to us, and like that. My sister didn't see it. And then I went to my first AA meeting when I was 11 or 12. So hearing people give their testimonies and that we all suffer, all of us, we're all human. Mm. So it's interesting. I was playing pickleball yesterday morning and I mentioned, I was reading through this book and someone said, what do you have to do today? I said, I've got a podcast interview and I'm going to be talking to a guy who's a surgeon and he used the term, he called himself an empath. These are, these are both, I'll call them mature women. They, they're not, they know the way and they go empath. What is that? So when you use the term empath, what are you referring to? I have the ability to put myself in other shoes. My dad taught me when someone confronts you and they accuse you or they attack you, the first thing you want to do is throw a punch. That's your first step. The second step is to take a step back and go, why am I angry? Why am I, why do I want to punch this person? And the third step is, why did they just do that? Put yourself in their shoes and why did they just do that? I've had this very close relationship with death. My mom passing away, my dad passing away, with my grandfather passing away a week before that, that has uniquely, and I back then, not being a follower as much, would say that, no, I did say that, that's God just teaching me how to be a better doc. Yeah, I think it's just like body language. I was a big brother to all the girls at the schools, and I would only need to know 10%. I probably feel like an FBI agent. That's all they probably need to get a witness to speak as if you know everything. And, and, oh yeah, I really like Joe. He's a great guy. And don't tell him no. And they just revealed their whole life because I was a big brother. So I was safe. I mean, I had to read body language and know that I was right about that feeling. And yeah, it's interesting. You brought it up and it was something that I wanted to discuss. You mentioned that you... Obviously, when you were growing up, you had experience with death and family members, but being on the front lines where you are in the medical world, you are around 
death and the possibility of death, probably as much as anyone. I'm sure there's some other professions and the EMTs and things like that that are really close. I really do think at times, this is something I've said before, and I'll say it here in the, and I'll pose it in the form of a question. I sometimes think that part of the issues we have in this world, in this life, is either a fear of death or not understanding it, or those of us that are followers not really understanding eternal life and what that means. What have you, in the role you're in, learned about life, death, the good, the bad, the ugly, and anything that you may just have on your heart that you want to share? Because I really do. I've been around a grandmother and a father right around the time that he passed, but I haven't been around a lot of people at the time that they passed. So I find that interesting. So any, that's a question. It's just a topic. What would you like to share about that? Yeah, I have two things that came to mind. One was my dedication in the book, which was to my grandmother and the miracles that she left behind. So she was a Christian. I knew she was going to heaven. I was blessed. It was a miracle that I could even be there for the last two weeks to be in her house and help her out and be there to support, hold her in. And, and then the miracle of she died at 1031 and her awesome clock that you have to wind it probably every week or so stops at 1031. And then the stool in the guest bathroom with a book on it, that's got a bookmark in her glasses and she's clearly going to come back because she's already started the book and the title's gone missing. But I think the most dramatic to me, which is what I think gives the most hope from the book is the last chapter. It's just titled Ralph. He was a great friend of mine who asked me about Christianity. He was a Vietnam vet, atheist. I brought him the Truth Project. He he developed after he retired this really horrible Parkinson's disease that was really accelerated, had a stroke on his right side, so he couldn't move his right arm. But I'm not going to give it all away. Because if you're going to read anything out of the book, I'd say this is the one that's going to give you the most hope in life because he clearly came to Jesus. He had slurred speech from this, and I won't describe what happened, but God blessed me with witnessing this person make a choice. Hmm. I haven't. No, that's exciting. Like I, t- I said, my Kindle tells me I'm 66%. Yeah, yeah. haven't got to that yet. Don't spoil it. Don't spoil no, the ending no. for me. To me, it seems as if some people in the role you're in could become, I'll just say this, could become like numb to humanity, could become numb to the value of life and the way death occurs. Is that valid? Do you see that? And I'm not asking you to call out some of your colleagues, but do you see that? I've I've been around some health professionals that I think they're just numb to it. And how does one prevent themselves from becoming that when you see so much of it? Yeah, I think definitely burnout. And burnout can be really quick if you don't deal with the loss, the thing. And if you just become numb, eventually that goes to anger when you're called at two o'clock in the morning and you're just tired and done and don't want to do that. And I've seen it in almost all the professions. Ours is probably the most demanding. Cardiothoracic is probably more demanding than ours is, but we have different challenges because it's not necessarily the surgery, it's the care afterwards. Like I do a ruptured aneurysm, that's one of the stories in the book. It's three months that this person's there and they actually didn't make it. Yeah. So I think, yeah, definitely. I think burnout is huge. Post-traumatic stress syndrome. If you test all the ICU nurses, they've got it. 
I'm sure if I test it, I probably have it, but I just use it for my good. It's just, God's put me in these positions to train me to, you can't minister until you've been ministered to. You can't, but it's, you're more effective if you know what you're going through and you can tell other people, look, I've been through this too. It, there's some credence in what you say. Yeah. So I just, I think I've just been blessed with being put in these positions to later be used in the same position or similar to guide families. I always start a conversation with families that don't know what's going on with what do you know so far? Because I don't know where they know. Where can I begin? And, and then go from there and be honest. So one of the things I picked up on in reading in the book, and it's interesting from talking to you because you have a very, I'll call it measured, possibly dry tone, but yet you talk about you are a prankster. <laughs> and yeah, so you even have a, a nick have a nickname called Tank. I don't know if we want to hear that story or not, but you, is that kind of a pressure release? Is that a way to relieve pressure because of the tenseness of the role you play? Or is it just, you're just a yeah. prankster and the happen thing, to be a surgeon? <laughs> I, I learned I was dyslexic from my youngest son. And so he was getting in trouble at school. He was a class clown. He's very social, very charismatic. But he was ending up in the principal's office. And so we pulled him out and we homeschooled him along with our second oldest son. And I think growing up, I was the class clown. Sixth grade, uh, Mr. Hill was an ex-Green Beret. He would bring films from Stanford from World War II and show the concentration camps and stuff. And I'm not sure how our parents consented to that, but they must have. Maybe they didn't. He just showed them. But he had this long bopper, a wooden stick with a rubber black tip on the end of it. And... It was named the Benson Bopper from the last clown the year before, and we knew how many bops he had. So I went for the record, and I got crushed by a hundred and something. But yeah, so I think for me, absolutely, humor is one of my vents. It's a pressure reliever. Yeah, because I'm always curious. Someone who works with like leaders of organizations, I think that our life, it, most things in our life, we're kind of like these old pressure cookers. And there's got to be something over time that we psh, relieve some of that pressure. Yeah, and I just picked up on, on that somewhere along the way, this is an odd little shift, but you decided to write this book entitled, I'll give the full title here, Saved, One Trauma Surgeon's True Accounts of the Miracles in His Life. What's up with that? Why did you decide to write a book? So my grandmother for 15 years, I would take her to 68 Sacramento basketball Kings games. And she just, every time we go to dinner before, then go to the game and then I'd drive her home. And just during dinner, the car ride, she'd be, you need to write this book. It's going to inspire and motivate other people that you need to hear that doctors are human. They're raised on artificial pedestals. We all bleed the same and it's going to inspire them. So she kept, and she got to read the drafts of the Grant Cardone 10X leadership conference. And a bunch of people were saying, you need to be on the stage. You need to be on the stage. You need to talk to people and inspire them and give them hope and unite. So there's a picture in the book of me standing in Haiti in front of a UN helicopter. And I noticed the background of things. So in the background, this helicopter, my head's blocking some of the letters. So it just says in the very, very far left, U, the end's kind of worn off. And then it says unite and then T-I-O-N, which makes it. You need to unite people. So like action is taking act and making it more of a verb, so to speak. And I'm like, wow, okay. And I'm listening, right? Is God speaking to me? And where I was just in my head. 
But then all these other things that were happening, I was at a, in West Virginia, this gigantic Boy Scout camp, and some lady that was teaching us how to, uh, the adults got to do what's called bows and barrels. So you shoot bows and you get to shoot these rifles. And she was one of the bow people. And I said something to her where she said, you should put that in your book. I'm like, how do you know I'm writing a book? She goes, I don't know. It just seems like you would. Coincidence, luck, lucky, rare, impossible, weird, put God in there. And he's speaking to me. And then my grandma motivated me to do it. And then once she passed away, August 7th of 2021. So just recently, but a year and a half ago or so. Yeah. So I, I needed to do it. What was the writing process like for you? So see, it, the portion I'm at now, it's a series of stories. You're quite the storyteller and it inspires and does those things. But what was it like sitting down and writing for you? So I got to cheat. Another miracle, we're in Vegas at the Grant Cardone thing and a musician's on stage. He comes over and chit-chats with us and he says, hey, why don't you guys come join my wife and our friends at this bar We're in Vegas for this conference. So we did. And one of the people there was a, a realtor writing a book and he had this editor that hooked him up with this app on your phone called Rev, R-E-V, and you could just dictate into it and then it would print it in five minutes. You can make that a Word document and then... I realized how horrible I sound when I just speak. Um, and then what, I'd also realized I left stuff out and then reword it and stuff. And then Hillary, just from a great editor, would, she didn't, she wouldn't change what, but she wanted to put, I forgot what document she used, but hey, clarify this, especially if it's a procedure or something. Okay, what's this? What do you mean by insufflator or describe this better? Or the chapter about LeBron James, it's who's he? I'm like, what, you don't know who this person is? And then I looked him up at Wikipedia and I'm like, oh my gosh, he's still married to his high school sweetheart, got these kids, he's been in these films and this is his basketball record. And so, yeah, I got to add. So it took a year and a half. So mm. it was a process. Yeah. Yeah. R writing is fun. And, but even though you mentioned you cheated, it's still you taking your thoughts, your stories, and then getting them with cool technology that we have now. And what were you, what do you think, or what do you hope, or what do you, obviously you're speaking and doing other things now, but what is the message you're attempting to get out there? You mentioned unity earlier. We could circle back to that, but what is it you're trying to get across? Yeah, I just feel a second calling. So it's still using my hands, my empathy, my teaching and service, but just in a different way. And that's just getting on in front of people businesses, societies, whatever, the bigger, the better, and just give them a message of hope and inspiration and help them find their gifts and look at the miracles in their life and that God still does exist and still here right behind you. Yeah. Are you still practicing medicine? Yeah. Yeah. Ah, okay. Are you still in the same role? Are you uh, still trauma surgery? Still doing the same thing. Yeah. Interesting, right there in, in the Georgia area. Good. So you're doing this as like an, I don't want to say an extra calling, but it's on top of that other calling that you've got. Right. Tell, t tell me about, you mentioned you, you did some medical missions trips. I think some people might be familiar with that. Some people aren't. Tell, tell us a little bit more about that. We've got a few minutes left here. I'm curious about what goes on there. Yeah, we would go to Honduras and we went to Copan in that area. For most of them, one we did to Tela, which has got the, probably the biggest miracle in the book, which is a rural hospital. The other one's like an outpatient center, almost like what plastic, plastic surgeons do. They'll have an operating room suite in their office. 
this couple bought it. It's at the end of an OB center where Bill Gates actually built a building next to it so the Mayan woman could come a week early and live there so they didn't give birth on the trail coming to the birthing center. They do 800 births in six months. It's very busy. And just the things so from six people looking in the shelves, some liquid Tylenol for one of the kids I'd operate on and no one finding it. And then someone going, let me just take one last look. And then boom, there it is. Or my having a friend set up, what will happen is we get there, we get housed. And then the next day we start setting up the clinic and where I'm going to see 80 to 100 patients in a half a day and then operate that next half. And then the next four days, I'll operate the whole day and I'll do 48 surgeries in four and a half days. No paperwork. So it makes it a lot easier. But it's just, if I'm not, it, there's a difference between happiness and joy. I'm not happy when I'm doing it. I'm very tired and it's a lot of work physically and mentally. But there's a lot of joy while you're doing it. It's, it's pleasurable to help people and then and fix them and help them heal. But yeah, and like I said, in one of these trips, my, my friend just set up this little, he made a room out of black plastic landscaping stuff you put down to keep the weeds from growing up. And then a three-legged table. And I don't know, there was a windowsill that we were in a courtyard of the school. I could hear like the 80 people lining up out there. My blood pressure is going up and... I'm getting nervous and anxious. And then I forgot to ask for these Ziploc bags for medications that have a rising sun, a mid-sun day, and then a setting sun to tell you when to take your pain meds. And I go, oh, I don't have those. And I look over in the windowsill and there's a roll there and no one can explain where they came from. So you see these things on these strips. The and miracles. Again, was, the other one was the one in Tella, and I won't go through that. Other than when I finished the, the laparoscopic gallbladder surgery. And when I turned around to see how much time it took, the clock was seven after seven on the seventh day of the month. Yeah, that's it's fascinating. I picked up, I, th I think one of the things you're, you shared well are just the way miracles pile up. And I think it's really cool to document. I think many times we're experiencing miracles all the time. and We just don't yeah. necessarily acknowledge them Craig, one thing that was fascinating to me, I was just looking at the cover of the book and I recognized something. And then I went back and I checked my notes and went back and checked the notes that we'd originally gotten from you. You are Craig Thayer. You sometimes add tank in there, but I do not see the typical thing that we would see with someone in your field, which is doctor in front of that. Right. Why is that? Why do you not? Because that is something that becomes an identity to many people that have gone through all that they have gone through to get that, that title. Why is doctor not there? That was very purposeful because this book is not about me. It's about God through me. And so putting the MD up there, like I said, is an artificial pedestal. And I'm writing this book as if it were anybody else. That's fascinating because that title means a lot to a lot of people, doesn't it? Well, I've seen surveys where that's the most trusted thing. If you're an MDO, they, we have the highest trust levels, but that's not my point. My point is this book is not about me being an MD. It's about, I'm blessed to do that, but it's really God through me and allowed the beginning. I could not have been here, but I am.
Right. Craig, one thing that's fascinating with all that you've done and all that I've got listed out here, there's a word that we have that gets thrown around, the word legacy and, you know, what people are remembered for. Do you have a thought? What do you want to be remembered for? What is, you know, if when people look up a Wikipedia page on Craig Thayer 20, 30, 50 years from now, what is it that you want that to have in it that you're known for? I think if I want to be cremated, so I don't want to be buried, so I wouldn't have a tombstone. But if I had a tombstone, I would love it to say a Christian who served and did not want to be served. That's good. And I think that's a great little exclamation point here on the end of our conversation. Do have a couple things for people that want to find the book or get in touch with you or connect or anything like that? Where do you want people to go? Yeah, I think the simplest thing is just the website. So it's Craig Thayer, C-R-A-I-G-T-H, season Tom, H-A-Y-E-R. I was always wondering why my dad said that. And then when I got old enough to start, oh, is that fair? No, it's Thayer with the T, dot net. So Craig Thayer dot net. And then I'll have a link to the site and then all the other things that's going on. This podcast will be in there too. Excellent. And I know that people can get the book everywhere because I think we got it off the Amazon. It popped in my Kindle. So anyway, and a great read. Hey, we are Seek, Go, Create here, Craig. Those three words. Let me give you one of those words over the other two. Just that resonates with you or means more right now. Whatever. Not too deep here, but to Seek, Go, or Create. Which one do you choose and why? Yeah, they're all good. But I think Seek is the one I would choose because I think you've hit the nail on the head that we're not stopping and looking. I do these crazy backpack trips every year that are off trail. And so you don't stop and look how much you climbed in the lake that you're above now. And we don't stop and look at the miracles in our life, right? We're just too busy. So I think we need to seek more, seek God, seek the miracles, just seek kindness and we'll have a much better life. Excellent. Thank you, Craig. Enjoyed this conversation. And I was excited to talk to a trauma surgeon that wrote a book <laughs> titled Saved. What yeah, a great yeah. book. So I recommend, listen, if you've been listening in, go grab a copy of the book. I, I always ask this, but I bet there's someone that you're thinking of as you listen to this that needs to hear this. And so take a screenshot or share it. If you're watching this on YouTube or in one of the podcast players, just share it. That's one of the best ways that people get exposed to podcast and YouTube and things like that. So make sure you do that. I appreciate the conversation. We do have new episodes every Monday until next time, continue being all that you were created to be.